Welcome to the Design Systems Podcast. We're all about the places where design and development overlap. We talk with the industry experts about trends in design, development, and take a look at new ways to build digital experiences, typically over a beer or two. Hey, welcome to the Design Systems Pod. Today, I'm sitting here with Charles Hall, the Senior UX Architect at MRM McCann. Uh, he lives in Detroit. He's an invited expert into the, the W3C Accessibility Guidelines Working Group. Welcome, Charles. Thanks for being with us today. Hey, thanks for having me. So first, before we really dive into this, can you explain a little bit more about what your role is and what you do both inside of, of MRM McCann and the W3C? Because it, it's a really important one, and I want to make sure that, that we explore this a little more than my typical 10-second intro. Uh, yeah, sure. The, those roles have a large degree of overlap, as most Venn diagrams in people's careers do, but they're, they're still relatively unrelated. So in the agency context, we are a large global agency uh, and we serve uh, hundreds of clients. We serve roughly 50 out of the Detroit office, but I work largely with one of them. Uh, so that capacity varies from the agency as a whole. My role as, a, as an architect is, is normal, typical UX things, uh, research wireframes, annotation, validation, testing, that sort of thing. But I have a unique subject matter expertise in accessibility among our team. So I helped roll out the way that we handle accessibility within the UX deliverables and process, as well as support how we roll out accessibility support in creative teams and technology teams. And so when it comes to to that sort of expansion or that rather that expertise in your role around accessibility, how does that relate to the work that you do with W3C? It is, it's heavily advised by uh, exposure that I have in the W3C. For example, I know what's coming. So not only am I very fluent in the, in the current guidelines, but I'm well aware of the upcoming guidelines. And that helps from a planning perspective. And then I have the ability to go the opposite direction where I have real world patterns that need accessibility solutions that help advise conversations that I have within the W3C. So, I mean, it's hard to talk about most anything on the modern web these days without accessibility coming up somewhere in the conversation, especially when you're talking about building these these digital experiences at scale. And so when we, we were planning this conversation, um, you did this great thing where you asked a whole bunch of different communities what they wanted to hear about in terms of accessibility. And I actually think I'm going to borrow that for a lot of, of future podcasts because that's a really wonderful way of kind of helping us guide the conversation. And so, you know, a lot of these conversations are, are based around an understanding a common ground, if you will, about why accessibility is important. And so can you help me understand a little bit more about why people should care about this topic and, and why this is so important and becoming such a, a big part of the conversation around digital? Yeah, first, I'm, I appreciate the question, and I'm, I'm glad that it is finally starting to trend in the right direction and, and get more attention. But at the same time, the volume of information and the joy of the internet is not all of it is accurate. And <laughs> that's the truth. <laughs> so it, it's hard to jump into that conversation and, and steer it in the right direction when there are some pride and, and ego associated with things that people put out on the Internet. The habit that you need to develop or the, the sort of muscle memory that comes along with following along with this conversation on the Internet is is the ability to weed out the bad advice. 
and still understand that most people are are well-meaning, well-intentioned and and trying to do the right thing even though they may be saying something that that isn't necessarily helpful. <laughs> Fake news and accessibility it, is a real thing. Yeah, so the underlying idea of accessibility is really the absence of barriers. It's as simple as that. So when someone tries to define accessibility as specifically for people with disabilities, it's not incorrect but it's also not correct. It's sort of disheartening to hear the narrow lens of how it's described. I think that we used to think about accessibility as as screen readers. Right. And I feel like that's a very narrow viewpoint. Yeah, exactly. So that's the the thing that most people, particularly in in creative and development roles, tend to think first is making an accommodation for someone using a screen reader. And that's one input device, one functional need and there are literally unlimited again simplifying the concept it's the absence of barriers so then you have to understand how to recognize barriers and and what is that so there's there's bias inherent in everything that we do and it tends to come out in in some sort of barrier or exclusion and we can find ways to identify those and identify them more quickly Gotcha. So, so what do you mean by barriers? Is that, is that the typical things that we think of? I mean, I could imagine like somebody that has um, a hearing impairment or isn't sighted or maybe has some inability to, to use a mouse or a keyboard. So those are the ones that come to mind when you, when you talk about that, but I'm sure there are other barriers too. Can you talk about those maybe that are a little less uh, commonly thought of? Yeah, absolutely. So you, you nailed those things that are related to human functional needs that have a input device modality associated with them. I have to use X in order to do Y. Mm-hmm. That's just the method. The person using that method may encounter a barrier for that method, but still may be able to navigate around it by using a different method, right? So if, for example, uh, I'm blind and I am navigating a website using a, a specific voice assistant and I'm having a challenge navigating, I might switch assistants. I might switch browsers. Mm-hmm. I might just give up and try to find that same content elsewhere. The barriers are as nuanced as people are. And That includes things like the copy itself, right? So people with cognitive disabilities or language or learning disabilities coming across technical jargon, that's a barrier, right? They they can't understand the content that's being presented to them. And in the context of that content, they're not provided some sort of like parenthetical simplified explanation of that content. Even words can be a barrier to people. Gotcha. So, so the TLDRs of, of the world like is both accessible in that it, it simplifies something that is potentially too long for somebody, but it also is inaccessible in that it's, it's jargon for too long didn't read? Yeah. Gotcha. Great. I'm glad I nailed that one. Anyway, so, so talk to me a little bit more about, about why this is so important and, and why the work you're doing is, is so relevant right now. I'm I'm in a point now in my journey along my accessibility career where I am trying to quantify people less. So I have a ton of statistics and I have most of them memorized, but I'm trying to utilize them less because numbers really put the wrong lens on something. But when mm-hmm. people are first getting started with trying to understand what accessibility is and the scale and, and scope of it, sometimes those numbers help. So here's the the sort of uh, simple way to look at it. One out of four people have a disability, but four out of four people have an access need, Mm -hmm. right? So you're talking about everyone. 
Right. No, that's a, a powerful statement. I feel like just the understanding that this does affect everybody. Right. So the scale is literally humanity. And from a global perspective, there are uh, roughly 75 countries around the world that have laws regarding accessibility for information technology, including the web. And in some of those countries, it's becoming heavily enforced. Like here in the US, we have a litigious society and the rate in which ADA Title III cases against websites are filed is now uh, at a pace of one per hour. Isn't that what was related to, to Domino's and, and that whole uh, controversy that was, I guess, back in October? Right. So Domino's helped elevate the conversation, but they're really an insignificant blip in in the scheme of the, the litigation landscape and, and the number of cases. And the only reason the attention scaled so dramatically in the case of Domino's is instead of accepting the lower court's decision, they had to be accessible. They decided to double down and continue trying to to fight the suit and uh, filed a writ with the Supreme Court. And there are a lot of articles out there about the Domino's case in the Supreme Court, and they all have somewhat accurate content and all very incorrect and misleading headlines. (laughs) Yeah. Um, All the headlines that you saw were about the Supreme Court made a decision. And in fact, it's the opposite. The Supreme Court chose not to hear it. They specifically did not make a decision, meaning it's remanded to the lower court. So the lower court ruling is held that that, right. that needed to be accessible or that experience, I believe it was related to ordering, right. needed to be an accessible experience. Right. But we've had um, high profile web accessibility cases uh, all the way back to 2008 with Target and the Department of Justice here in the U.S. has asserted that websites are covered under ADA Title III. Uh, as early as 1996. So there's a set of legal requirements. It's also like a good practice because you're being a good citizen of humanity. There is a combination of of access and disability and all these things that sort of are creating this core need to create experiences that people consume on the internet in a very accessible way. So not only is it uh, a law that supports a human right uh, of access, but it is essential for participation in society, right? The, The vast majority of things that we do in modern society are through the web. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if you exclude people, not only are they experiencing a barrier with a piece of technology, they're experiencing a barrier with participation with society in general. So it's it's really a big deal. If you think about it from a pure business perspective, going back to the stat of one out of four people have a disability, if you have barriers on your website for 25% of your potential audience, wouldn't you want to remove them? We get questions all the time about how can I get 1% more traffic or how do I get 1% more checkouts? Right. How about 25% more? Exactly. Well, that's awesome. That's a great, great kind of overview of, of why this all matters. You know, kind of shifting gears to to the more practical side of it. So I'm somebody that is director or manager or or head of a digital product, and I'm plunked down in this role. Okay, accessibility is important. I know I need to do this. I'm going to go about building this product. How do I get started with this down the right pathway? Like, where where is my starting point here? That's a great question and one that's pretty popular out there. So my recommendation is start with a definition and a policy, right? Your organization should have some sort of guiding principle, a a north star of what it means to you. And when you have that, here's, here's how we define accessibility and here's how we intend to support accessibility. 
then all the ducks can align to that. The added advantage by having an internal policy is you're halfway to the point of making an outward policy. So an accessibility statement on your website is one of the most important things that you can do. So it's not just about messaging inside of the people building the product. It's about broadly messaging it across the company and even to stakeholders that are outside of the company. Well, and to your your users and, and consumers. Right. So an accessibility statement on your website is a reflection of that policy. Here's what accessibility is. Here's what it means to us. Here's our goal. Here's what we're trying to achieve. Here's what we're doing toward that goal. And if you encounter a barrier, here's a means to contact us and we'll help you know remedy that. Gotcha. So set up your feedback loop, basically, where you have this idea of, of here's how you get right. changes made if you're finding that there's a barrier for you. Right. So again, accessibility is is far reaching and impacts everyone. But if we just took the blind and visually impaired audience, particularly those using screen readers and particularly those using high trafficked, high profile common web services, the statistics that we have there is 80% of the people in that audience that encounter a barrier will just bounce. They'll leave. So Mm. you'll lose them. A small percentage of those people that bounce are very vocal anti-advocates, right? So they're going to go out and slam you. So you're going to get negative press associated with the barrier that they encountered. Of the 20% remaining that try and navigate around those barriers, there's a whole ton of things that could happen. But one of the most common reactions that someone will have or responses that someone will have is look to see if there is someone that they can contact to help alleviate the barrier. So they'll look in the footer for an accessibility statement or policy and see if that has any contact information about relieving their barrier. And in Mm -hmm. the absence of that, that's when people get frustrated and, and then go on to file claims. When you're first getting started, that policy serves both audiences, all of your internal stakeholders who are working to meet that policy and your general public to help them understand why you care, what you're doing about it. No, it totally makes sense. So so you set up this this framework that gives people an avenue, and then you also have a statement that is is potentially boldly made at this point about your value and 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 how you're you're thinking about accessibility as an organization. And then I sit down and start coding, or I, I sit down and and I start, you know, dragging boxes around a, a sketch artboard. What are my first steps there to really think about about when I go to build these experiences, being mindful of that that accessibility principle that I've defined. Yeah, so it helps to sort of customize this to your organization and, and your workflow and the, the types of roles uh, that are doing these tasks. So to give you an example, here's how we've done it. Our goal is WCAG 2.1 level AA conformance. So within that, there's 50 success criteria. If you break those success criteria down to the role or discipline who has a primary responsibility for it, or at least is the first person who should have a primary responsibility for it, then you can more evenly distribute that. And it doesn't seem like so many things that I have to to know and do uh, or think about. And it really isn't that list of things of criteria that now belong to you doesn't necessarily represent more work. It doesn't even represent more decisions that need to be made. It just simply represents different decisions based on the outcome that you need. Gotcha. So so it's almost like a project management technique of like build this into your workflow, build it into the way that you think about creating the product from the start, and then delegate that responsibility across 
relevant people that are able to make those decisions in in the context of the actual creation of a, an application. Yeah, absolutely. So some of them are relatively obvious, right? So if you have a visual designers, you're going to have them assume the primary responsibility for those that are predominantly visual design related criteria, like color contrast, right? So someone in a visual design team is responsible for making the decision between two colors that have sufficient contrast. Again, not more work, not more decisions, just a different decision and better outcomes. And then you have the same sort of things. Some of them are relatively obviously uh, in the realm of development. Like every page has to have a language attribute, nine characters of code on the HTML document, and yet 33% of the web is missing it. Well, that's an incredible statistic, actually. Yeah, that's from the uh, WebAIM Million Report. So for those unfamiliar, WebAIM, one of the most respected organizations out there, used their WAVE tool, which does automated testing, and took the Alexa index of the top 1 million domains and used their tool against the homepage of all million domains. The startling result of that is that 98% of the web is broken, broken in the sense that there are easily detectable accessibility issues on these homepages using that software. That's crazy. So, so why do you think that is? Why, why are people... You know, with all the emphasis placed on this now and, and the fact that there's even like a legal liability attached to it, why are people um, that are building these digital products still failing here? Yeah, so that's a great question. And key word in that question was, to me, was still, right? So the web's been around for 30 years. The ADA has been around for 30 years. The WCAG has been around for 20 years. So we've had the, we've had the information and, and the tools at our disposal to do it right, and we haven't. Yet we're surprised by it now that the conversation has escalated, that we have ignored it all of this time. And you would think that the response to that conversation is that that number is improving, that score is improving. The patterns that we see on the web are getting better. And the short answer to that is things take time, mm -hmm. right? So even if you started your accessibility journey two years ago at the height of the trend in lawsuits escalating to the point that it is now, you're probably still in production on those things, mm -hmm. right? And, and then there's all kinds of other variables, your dependencies on frameworks and CSS frameworks and JavaScript frameworks and CMS platforms and all the tooling uh, all those things are contributing to the accessibility debt out there. So the short answer is, is, is that this stuff takes time and, and there's a lot of limitations sort of baked into the tools and the, the choices that we've made um, that we're still living with today. Absolutely. But the good news is even though it takes time, accept that and approach solving the problem in a manner that is one thing at a time. We started to get to how do I think about this in the aspect of teams and, and getting started? Mm -hmm. Well, you think about that at, at the onset of a project and there's very few things that need to get done. When all of those questions are asked and considerations are made at the beginning, if you're somebody who has already shipped a product and has realized that it's you know not accessible, that oh shit moment of of I'm being sued or whatever, right? Right. Not even yeah. That well, that's a different reaction. But just even coming to the realization that you know I shipped a thing and and it's broken. It has some some debt to resolve. Remediation takes time, right? It 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 generally takes thirty times the effort to remediate something as it would have 
placing that effort at the beginning of the process. So prioritize those things within that understanding and accepting that it takes time. Right. So the uh, going back to the this concept of dividing those success criteria against key roles and, and responsibilities, there are also ways to prioritize those. Right. So if you say, as we did, eight are essentially in the domain of UX, 19 in the domain of uh, mm-hmm. of creative and 23 in the domain of of development. Inside of those are high priority ones and lesser priority ones and high priority ones are you can prioritize them in any way that suits you. But I would recommend that you prioritize them based on something like human impact. Mm-hmm. Right. So, for example, there's a success criteria that nothing flashes. I call that the, the top criteria. Right. So that that is one that can actually physically harm and or kill someone. Right. You know, if you're triggering a seizure. That's obviously priority number one. Let's stop that thing that's flashing. No, so I'm actually, I'm really curious just for my own edification. Is that why the blink tag went away in HTML? Is is that problem? That's a great question. I actually don't know the history of deprecating HTML elements. We're going to have to find somebody that can answer that question. That's really interesting to me. Yeah, and of course, like you don't want to to um, harm somebody. And so like starting to to go down that pathway first is like, this hierarchy of needs. So you break it up along along these contours of of someone's sort of role and 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 influence in an organization, and then you sort of then sub prioritize those based on on the impact of of each of them. Right. Exactly. And then there's another lens on on how you prioritize things if you are trying to mitigate your legal risk. So if you have been sued you are 50% more likely to be sued again. And if you're in a, a relatively high volume industry like retail or airline or, or something like that, your risk factor is higher. So that prioritization can also be looked at from the legal aspect and, and risk mitigation. Uh, the things that you can look at to prioritize are, are those things that were within the claim. And as I said earlier, we're at a, a rate right now where there's a lawsuit filed every hour. Mm-hmm. And if you look at those, the vast majority of them are what is called copy and paste or drive-by lawsuits, meaning relatively a small number of firms are filing these claims uh, on behalf of a relatively small volume of plaintiffs, and they're literally copying and pasting the claims from previous ones for reuse. So if you look inside of those claims, there are roughly 17 common issues but there are only four that end up being a subject of the particular claim that's filed. And those are common across all of these as well. Those four things point to two individual success criteria, and they are alt text, mm-hmm. uh, non-text content, and empty or redundant links, right? So oh, think, of, think of like the read more, read more, read more, learn more, learn mm-hmm. more, learn more, redundant ones that fail out of context. But then there's all these link patterns where we have an icon that links to something and the icon doesn't have an accessible name or alternative text associated with. So the link is literally empty. So those two issues you could look at as your means of prioritization as well. So you have this this system then, this framework for addressing these issues. You know, most of the way that people address these things is through some sort of, of testing, be that manual testing or automated testing where, you know, you design a set of accessibility tests. There's a bunch of tools you can buy that do this. So looking at at ways that you you go about testing these things, like what do you recommend there? How do I know that I'm actually compliant with 
in particular those two issues, but more broadly, all of these different 50-odd things that are, are goals of, of these standards? Yeah, great question. So I think the that answer varies by your, your organization and the prioritization scheme that you've picked. But there are also, as you said, tons of tools out there. Some of them are software as a service that you can contract and they can just seamlessly run in the background for you. And they run on your production environment and, and based on whatever schedule that you need. And they generate reports and, and tell you, you know, the volume of issues you have on the volume of pages. Those are all great and they're pretty necessary for sites that have a large number of pages. But the thing to keep in mind is any of those tools are only capable of detecting a subset of issues. So of those 50 criteria in AA conformance target, you might only be getting tests against 19 of them. So the balance has to be done manually. The parties that do the manual evaluation not only have to have domain expertise or strong domain knowledge in accessibility, but they also have to have domain knowledge in your site, right? So there's a lot of context and nuance and subjectivity in conducting that evaluation. You know, this is the Design Systems podcast. And so when you think about how design systems can step in here and help, I'd be curious to know, because one of the things that we talk about is in a, a very similar framework, this idea of if you're trying to scale your front-end experiences across multiple products or across very complex products, doing that in a manual rote way is challenging because it, it becomes a level of effort and a level of complexity that is really difficult. Similarly, when we talk about testing with design systems and we look at things like, like visual regressions or you know just general front-end testing, it's really hard to do those things across potentially tens of thousands, if not millions of different pages on, on a digital website. And so when we think about that for accessibility, you know, leveraging the ability to, to test an abstraction, do you view that as a, a really valuable piece of the design system's impact on accessibility? There's a couple of things that should put people at ease who are in this position of, of trying to, to handle accessibility in the context of a design system and figure out the best way to uh, evaluate and go through any remediation that comes out of that. Almost every design system on the planet, and, and rightfully so, is built in a very modular component-driven way, right? So you have mm -hmm. element-level components, you have organism-level components that have a bunch of elements together in, in various ways, and then you have some sort of template that puts components together in specific orders, and then you have page outputs of that, right? So if you look at the individual element level, the smallest level, and you make that accessible, that element is consumed by n number of other components in the system, right? So you're piece by piece making a very large and significant dent in ensuring accessible outcomes. So as you progress up those levels of more complex components, you simply design and develop and test the component level. So it is possible to, to design and develop 100% conformant components. The challenge then in testing is even though you have designed and developed it and tested it and it's conformant and it's solid, the system has to constrain the author's use of that component in a way that mm -hmm. it can't be used to break other components or it can't be filled with content that then breaks it, right? Gotcha. So there's, there's the... 
uh, evaluation of the component itself, which is fairly easy, but then there's the evaluation of how the architecture allows that component to change. There has to be some sort of constraint and governance around how that component gets used, or then you reintroduce the risk of it no longer being accessible. Gotcha. So the component isn't inherently successful without those guardrails placed on usage of it. And it's interesting because this concept of of how content relates to components has been something that's been a bit of a recurring theme on this podcast around how do I create this understanding of like, okay, so I have this component and I understand this encapsulated modular experience. How do I make an edit form that also doesn't break this beautiful encapsulated function that I have? That's also true for accessibility. I mean, you still, like you were, you were talking about, you know, you can create these perfectly accessible components that at implementation time end up being inaccessible. I think there's still a lot of value in having those components be accessible because then instead of, you know, a million accessibility errors, you're hopefully slimming that number down by a lot. And it also helps you with a little bit of signal to noise ratio where, you know, one thing that's inaccessible about a component spread across 10,000 different pages is 10,000 accessibility errors, not one accessibility error. So, you know, those are some obvious ways that the design systems are helpful in terms of of this relationship of the content to the actual experience, like, do you see any way that that design systems are able to help overcome that problem? Is it is it just literally setting the rules, or is it having a playground? What do you see as the way that 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 gets solved? Yeah, it's predominantly communication, right? So the ideal design system doesn't just present the available components and their configurability, but it somehow states in text what the intent of the component is, what the purpose is, what sort of constraints it should have when it's it's being used. So when you have the ability to annotate those things within the, uh, the system itself, you also have the ability to add any accessibility annotation, right? So dear inheritor of this component who is capable of putting 18 pictures into an image carousel, make sure you have appropriate alt text for all 18 of them, right? Some sort of instruction that communicates that message along the way. I write a lot of letters to my future self, so that really speaks to me. (laughs) Right. So some sort of uh, actual business logic under the hood that constrains uh, and and governs the, uh, the use of the component itself, right? So if you have a CMS and you have that sort of scenario where an author comes in and puts an image into a component, it won't let them close or, or publish that component without the alt text, for example, mm-hmm. or without justifying that it's decorative and doesn't need alt text. Some sort of you know, check and balance in the system itself that, that prevents it. There, there's governance that could be presented other ways, like prevent use. So we have a system, for example, where unfortunately styles are coupled with headings. So when visual designers want a particular look, for a piece of copy on a page, they will use a heading element based on the intended style versus on the actual heading level that should be there. So as a result, there are multiple H1s on pages or there are headings out of order, uh, headings that are skipped. All of those scenarios are accessibility fails. So if the system had prevented the insertion of more than one H1 onto a page, or prevented the insertion of an H1 after an H2, you could have 
like thrown some sort of an alert in front of the author that says, hey, you can't do that. Choose a different element. And then the other solution to that problem and in, in making sure that it doesn't happen is aside from business logic and throwing errors and preventing authors from doing certain things is decoupling those things in the first place in your style, right? So uh, a heading doesn't have to have a specific look. It has to have a specific meaning. Yeah, I totally agree with that. I mean, headings are almost like, you know, the organizational units of a, of a, of a site. And I think that you know, because we went back to, you know, all of this grew out of this idea of like word processors, right? Where like, hey, how do I how do I create a title in my word document? Well, like that's a heading or whatever, right? And so, you know, we have this relationship between the idea of stylistically what a heading is and then organizationally what a heading is. And that was something that that I didn't know embarrassingly until fairly recently. That not necessarily that you wanted to decouple styles from from headings, but that you literally have to go in in order, right? And, and H2 always follows an H1. One, then an H3, and then you also have to back out in the same order and not skip. That was something I had not realized until um, maybe about a year ago. Right. So a, a great way to think about that and to help inform less technical audiences that are involved in the design system is reiterating that HTML exists to describe its content. It does not exist to display its content. That's CSS. So those two things are automatically decoupled in having a language for each. Oh, I love that. That's a great distinction. What's what's next in this realm? Like what do you see as is the future here? Like where where is this all headed towards? I think we have a tremendous responsibility to fix the broken web as a as an industry and as a society at large, right? We're actively excluding people. And that behavior has to change in in a very profound way. And Everyone comes to that realization and, and aha moment uh, through different avenues and, and at different times. And, and as we've said a couple of times, it's relatively widely talked about in design and development communities already. So the word is out. WCAG is 20 years old. We don't, this isn't anything new. Mm. The, the behavior change that goes along with it has to include some degree of intolerance and it has to include some degree of accountability. So if we simply say that we're not going to accept something that is not accessible and draw that line in the sand, then we have a, a mechanism to help us reinforce our own behavior. Similarly, by being accountable, we have an avenue to hold ourselves accountable and we have an avenue to hold each other to account. So behavior changes there could be like, did I sufficiently describe that in my documentation? Did, mm. did I did I annotate that, you know, this element has to have uh, the correct contrast in all of its states and not just its default state? Did I do the thing that is within my responsibility? But also by holding each other to account, we have already the idea of like pair programming and peer reviews and systems of checks and balances where we present our work to each other. Those systems simply are behaviors that we need to adopt to include accessibility considerations. You know, it opens up a lot of, of thoughts about, you know, ways that we can all make this a better place. And and also, you know, when you really talk about inclusivity and, and accessibility, um, how it really is about just removing barriers for everyone. And and that that feeling of actively excluding people, that, that feels wrong. 
And so it's it's great to get that perspective. Again, just like the volume of issues is a big, scary thing, and you can accept that and just uh, tackle one thing at a time. The same goes with you know learning and, and behavior. In order to change your behavior, you probably also have to learn the thing that you need to do. When you learn the thing that you need to do, share that learning with someone else, right? So that there is this dramatic increase in institutional knowledge. The other thing that goes along with that is when you discover things are broken and you have to go through the remediation process, it sucks. And you don't want to do that again, right? So you learn along the way as you're fixing the thing, how to prevent that same issue from occurring again in the future. So you don't have to go through that remediation process. Right. Remove some of your own pain. I just want to thank you for being here today. I really appreciate it. Uh, I know I learned a lot and uh, looking forward to talking to you again soon. All right. Thank you very much. That's all for today. We'd love to hear from you with questions, ideas for new episodes, beer recommendations, or comments. You can find us on Twitter at the DS Pod. Cheers, and thanks for listening to the Design Systems Podcast. Mm-hmm.